Hello and welcome to another episode of Vagabond Actors Podcast. I am Andrea Helene. I am talking to you from Mallorca, Spain. And with me are my two gentlemen colleagues, Gary Condis from London. Hello, Gary. Greetings. Hello, Andrea. <laughs> Greetings to you. And Brian Casp from Prague. Hello, Brian. Hi, Andrea. Great to talk to you tonight. Great to talk to you. I've been thinking about you a lot this week, Brian. Really? Ooh, that's exciting. Yes. Mm-hmm. What What have you been thinking about? <laughs> Did I do something? Or Well, I've been picturing your at-home sound studio and self-taping studio. I've just been channeling your ideas about how to set up your studio space and wishing that I had one that I could just sort of sweep into each time an audition comes through. Because right now I'm having to just set everything up from zero every single time. And it takes Mm -hmm. so much time and energy. So I think sort of the same way I always have envied Daniel Day-Lewis. I'm starting to envy you that you have a setup. The the shed? (laughs) Yes. I've always envied the shed. I know I need a shed. So I've been thinking about you a lot going, oh, Brian's got it all together, man. Well, (laughs) uh, you know, it looks like that on Instagram. But it's not real life. Listen, (laughs) no, but I think that it would be good if you can leave a lot of your setup up somewhere. But Mm -hmm. even when I had a studio that I was going to, like pre-lockdown, I would have to set up everything or move it into position each time. Mm-hmm. And it takes a little bit of time, but you get faster at doing it. It yeah. helps if you can leave the lights on the stands and you can have everything kind of in a corner, basically constructed, but not put in its place where it needs to be. But I'll tell you what setting it up every time does is it helps you to learn how to adjust to the actual light conditions. Mm -hmm. And you can play around with how the lighting is each time and try and make it as, as good as you can. That's one of the key reasons why I keep moving rooms because of the lighting. Yeah. Yeah. Depending on the time of day when I'm able to shoot it. But in the middle of it, this last week I had one. And in the middle of it, I'm like, you know, I would rather just get on the 405 and drive up to North Hollywood at four o'clock on a Friday afternoon (laughs) and be done with it and walk into their studio space with their beautiful blue backdrop and perfect lighting and be done. That was going through my brain. Except you wouldn't. (laughs) Because you'd be on the 405 for hours. (laughs) The 405 is a major, major freeway in Los Angeles. And I've spent thousands of hours on it. (laughs) Yeah. And you picture the freeways of Los Angeles with their hundreds of thousands of cars or millions of cars driving and in one way, (laughs) seven lanes and seven lanes the other way of traffic. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's the 405. Yep. It's major. It's not fun. And I drove it for 15 years back and forth to the theater. So I know it all too well, but I guess it was a, it's a known quantity, isn't it? And then, and you have that idea of I'm going to a casting location and this is it. And when I park the car and I get myself ready, like this is my time. And so I do love about self-taping that I get to do it on my own time. But boy, when I'm setting up that camera and those lights over and over again, I do have that little monologue going on in my brain going, ah, I would really just rather go to somebody else's studio right now. But there you have it. You know, I know that in London, there are lots of self-tape studios that are popping up. I know Spotlight 
has services like that and Mm -hmm. other people do it as well. But maybe if you know someone that has a space that could be conducive to self-taping, then that could be, you know, like the people that can organize a space are going to maybe have a business opportunity. Totally agree. Anywho, tell me about your week. So anything creative that you've been able to enjoy or learn from this week? Gary, how was your week? My week has been pretty busy, actually. A couple of things really interesting for me. I don't know if you remember, I was doing a self-help casting for a, a client of mine. Well, she got a recall. Great. Great. Yeah, so that's fantastic. So we were working on that, different scenes. So there was sort of the added pressure of now it's the next round, which we've spoken about. There's always that pressure that is added as much as you can try and deal with it. And she'd been offered to read for a, a bigger part. So that was very interesting and very nice to have her go through to the next round. So we'll see about that. And then also I mentioned a play that I was working on with a client, a Carol Churchill play that he was mm-hmm. going to be doing on Zoom. A Number by Carol Churchill, which was a, an award winner here, an Evening Standard Award for Best Play. And if you remember, it deals with cloning and impact of the procedure of cloning on a father and son relationship. And it's all about the identity of nature and nurture and all of that stuff. Well, yeah, he was coming up to um, performance. So I was getting him into shape and knocked him into shape. And uh, yeah, I watched it and it was great. You know, albeit on Zoom, it was a really good job. And it was an intense play. It's an hour long only, but it's really full on. And he really captured the sort of similarities, but at the same time, the differences between the three clones. And that's one of the things we really struggled with and wrestled with in the coaching sessions was, do we really delineate these characters as very, very different because they are, or do we do it more subtly and let the audience's imagination go with it, but do enough to suggest that there is nurture that has impacted on these characters, even though they are from the same DNA. So yeah, it was quite rewarding to finally see something that came to fruition, if you like. Mm-hmm. The great thing is, I think they've been asked to do it in the theatre um, when they open. So that's really cool because it means yeah. I get to um, coach him even more, and that means my job gets extended. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Wonderful. Hey, Brian, what about you? What's happening in Prague? Well, this past week, I've started to work on a video game. And it's quite interesting how the branches of the video game lead to so many different places. Mm -hmm. And it's this weird combination of you want to get the tonality right, but I basically will give each line two to four times with different intonation and different takes uh, what I'm responding to because Mm -hmm. I'm doing it first. So I don't really hear what the other person's responding to the Mm -hmm. lines themselves. They have the cue lines there, but the pace that we're going at, I mean, it's something like, I don't know, 2000 lines or something like that that we'll have to record over a few weeks. So you're just trying to go as fast as you can through the lines, but also kind of nail the delivery and also give some variety and also, you know, just try and keep the energy in the same place over a five hour recording session. Mm -hmm. And it's really fun. It's not that it's not fun, but it's just an interesting problem to work on Mm -hmm. where you're trying to find that nice cruising altitude. Yeah. That's mostly what I was working on this week. Excellent. 
Cool. Yeah, yeah. These, those kind of jobs, you know, they don't maybe get always as much notoriety or attention, but there are very specific technical challenges involved in all of those types of roles. And the actors who can figure that out um, can really make a very steady career with this kind of work. Yeah. Well, this is the fourth or fifth game that I've been involved in. Mm-hmm. And it's with a small Czech studio. And so they may not have all the bells and whistles, but I think the game looks really good and, and they're really excited about getting it out there and mm-hmm. having people play it. So I'm, ex- I, and I'm excited about watching people play through and listening to, <laughs> you know, myself kind of respond to things that I'm like, wow, that's very different than what it was when we were recording it. Yeah. So I did a live action video game years ago and I did a lot of green screen work. Same thing where I had mm-hmm. to do variations on a theme, you know, depending on how the player interacted with my yeah. character. You know, if I was sitting at a desk and yeah. they clicked on my pen, I would write something. Or if they clicked on my telephone, I would answer the call. And so I always had right. to have the same, the exact same physical starting position in space. So it was great body discipline that I learned. But it was really fun when it came out, the kind of calls and requests I got from friends, like, I'm stuck in the dungeon. What, what do I need to click on? How do I get out of here? You yeah. know? And you're like, I don't know, man. It was <laughs> it was six months ago and I did ten versions of it, so I have no idea. Yeah, but it was it was fun to yeah. watch to watch people experiencing something so interactively. It was a good time. Yeah, it's fun. It's a good thing. And it's exciting that there are so many opportunities for actors that aren't just stage work or screen work. Amen. Yeah. And Andrea, I mean, you've said some bits about your mm-hmm. self-tape adventures, but um, did you have anything else going on? This week? No. Yeah. The self-tape adventure was fine. In the end, it was, again, a practice of like, I'm just going to have some fun with this. And then when my huge labradoodle walked into the shot while I was doing my slate, which was very long, they, they had a bunch of information they wanted in the slate. I just went with it. And I, that's the one I submitted was the one with the dog in it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. So I did that and also been reading a full treatment and pilot episode from a friend of mine of, an, of a comedy series that he's been developing over the last number of years. And that's been entertaining and wonderful. So doing some fun stuff like that all as well. Great. Mm-hmm. All right. Alrighty. Well, shall we get on with it? Yeah. <laughs> okay. We audition. Here it comes. Hey. This episode of the Vagabond Actors Podcast is brought to you by our friends at We Audition. Now look, we all know that auditioning in a pandemic sucks. You can't find the right partner, and if you do find the right partner, how are you going to connect with them in real time and have the read be seamless? Well, We Audition can help with that. They make it easy to find a partner and they take care of all of the technical stuff so that you can focus on what really matters, your audition and being awesome. Not only does We Audition allow you to find partners that can help you really kick ass, you can be a partner that helps other people really kick ass and get paid for it. There's other really great benefits to being a We Audition member. You can have one-on-ones with top casting directors, you can get career advice from industry professionals, and a lot more. Right now, We Audition is offering a discount on membership to Vagabond Actors listeners when you sign up with the promo code VAGABOND25. So just go to weaudition.com, click on sign up, then click on the link where it says promo code. Put VAGABOND25 in the box and you'll get 25% off your membership. Now, back to the show. So this week, we're talking about improvisation. 
Now, let's get clear up front that improvisation can mean a number of different things. And sometimes actors freak out when they hear about improvisation needed or desired on set, in a rehearsal, in an audition. And we want to demystify some of what it is and isn't and give you some insight into why we think it's important and how you can go about it in a way that is fun and free and beneficial to you. So one of the first things that I think we need to clarify is that when we speak of improvisation, we're talking about a couple of different things. There's improv as a theatrical form, which mostly we use in comedy work. And then there's improvisation, which is a kind of technique which is used in acting training or on the set and is geared towards creating a spontaneous, unscripted experience and exploration. So let's talk about why we think improvisation is important. Let's talk mostly to start with about using it in acting training and on the set and in auditions, when we'll need it and what the purpose is of an improvisational approach. Gary. Well, improvisation is often used by directors and writers as well as actors, and it can be really effective in training, in being very creatively freeing. It goes all the way back to storytelling around a fire, and people would make up stories around true stories. And then I suppose the next big event was the Commedia dell'arte in the 16th century, where they used to use it for improvisation of stock characters, and they were very much reliant on heavy improvisation around a script. And that's one of the two uses. You either don't have a script or you can use a script or how much of a script you can use. And as you mentioned, it's an element that can be often misused or misunderstood. And it fills a lot of actors with absolute dread Mm -hmm. or exhilaration, depending on how you approach it and how comfortable you are with it. I mean, some people are naturally comfortable in the moment. Mm -hmm. Others end up in their head and are just plain frozen. And it's unclear if improv can make you a more creative person. But with practice, I think you'll at least be more relaxed and on your feet. And I think the most expressive person when that happens is when you've got your guard down. I know very specifically there are one or two techniques out there that have as their foundation training exercises that use improvisation. And I'm referring to, you know, Meisner in particular, which I think I'll let you two get into more detail about because I'm sure you will. And um, <laughs> we we might have something to say about the Meisner technique. Well, I'm sure you will. And that's why I'm going to let you guys talk about it. <laughs> um, but myself in training, I've often used it as a teacher, as a coach, but also as a director and directly sort of taken Stanislavski's early work of fleshing out uh, relationships and events in between certain scenes that we see in the play. And one of the things that goes all the way back to the idea of the classical hot seating, which I think is a really good exercise to get actors not to think too much and to be free-flowing with either answering questions about their character or to get a sense of being able to express their point of view, really pin things down about their character, and it gives an opportunity to talk out. And this sense of talking out, for me, is is an element of improvisation, which really allows the actor to discover accidentally. What I tend to do is whether it's an objective, whether it's one's point of view, whether it's one's relationship, whether it's one's emotional history 
or past. I get actors to really talk out very loosely in a stream of consciousness, answering certain questions. A classic one is, I want a divorce from you. And the other actor who's acting with them would say, why? And that would then prompt them to have to then talk nonstop for 10, 15, 20 minutes or so in answering that. And what happens is is there's an organic sort of discovery that can happen. A lot of it you can junk, but some of it you can then cherry pick and go, I would never have thought of that if I was sitting with a pen and paper with the script trying to think my way through it. Strasbourg created this exercise called the private moment. Mm -hmm. That does two things. One, it starts to train the actor to be freer on the stage and less self-conscious. But secondly, it starts to allow them to investigate certain elements of the character that, as Stanislavski said, you have to be private in public. So it really starts to allow the actor to free themselves up with no story to necessarily tell, but to maybe grab elements of the character. Maybe they're at home and maybe they're getting ready for something or maybe they are getting ready for a party. And it's very creative in finding elements of character, whether it's feelings or behaviours or physical objects they might use. One thing I started to do with actors in terms of sort of developing this hot seating way of improvising was really trying to make their character work specific. And it was a lot of fun. And it also took the pressure of having to perform, which is often a big obstacle, I think, in our improvisation, trying to make it funny or trying to make Mm -hmm. it be impressive. And and one of the things I, I kind of get actors to do is sit in front of the class or their scene partner and tell us in their own words, as the actor, not as the character, inverted commas, but as the actor, and go, well, I see my character like this, and they'll talk a little bit about them, and what they'll do is I'll encourage them to show us. So I think my character, when they're at a party, they might behave like this, and then they start to merge in certain behaviours that might be useful for character work. Or they'll go, well, when my character is in church, which he does a lot in this play, for example, this is how he behaves because he's got a very bad taste in his mouth when it comes to church because of his upbringing. So this is what it does to him and he shuts down and he gets all tense. So there's a kind of narration that happens, which is really defining the character work, but allowing a sense of play for the actor to go between, this is what I think my character does, and then like doing it and allowing themselves to kind of just get involved in it for a little while. So those are just one or two of the sort of improvisational elements that I use in my trainings at certain points when I feel an actor needs it in order to sort of get them out of their academic mind and to be a bit more free-flowing and spontaneous. Mm-hmm. Brian, you have something to share there? Mm. Free-flowing and spontaneous being some key words there, Gary. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> the thing about a script, and Gary, I think you're touching on it quite a bit, and we talked about it when we were looking at text as well. The thing is that it tends to lock you down. You're reading words off of a page. You're reading behaviors off of a page that someone else wrote. And it tends to feel like I must do these things. That can feel very limiting. And so when you approach the work improvisationally, as you would if you were studying in a Meisner way, and even working with a text, there's a lot of the work that we do with a text is still improvisational because you're throwing it in there. You're you're going back to pinpoint behavior 
and then you're coming back to the text. You're not so concerned about fulfilling the moments that are described in the text. So it, it does feel very free and improvisational, even though you have specific words to say. So finding the freedom within this constraint of these are the words that I have to say and these are the actions that I have to do is really important. But that wouldn't be improvisation if you were saying the words. So basically it's the improvisational element is that you are either from your imagination or from something that you had practiced and come up with on your own ahead of time or in a rehearsal, you are basically providing extra moments and dealing with things that the writer didn't explicitly give you in improvisation. And that can be very good on a number of levels. That can be good, you know, if something unexpected happens on a set or when you're performing or even in a rehearsal, then by being free and working improvisationally, you can deal with it. You can respond to the people that are around you in real time if you're allowing yourself to be improvisational in a way that if you were being strict, you wouldn't be able to. For instance, when I was shooting, they were like, hey, can you just riff a little bit? Because we need more dialogue here when the main character is walking in and he needs to do some action and you need to be talking. So can you just say some stuff? So I did say some random stuff for a little while and then I basically settled on one particular improvisation to make sure that the timing was the same. But also there's actually a freedom when, even when you're shooting to kind of play with when you're going to say something or if you're going to repeat yourself, you can approach things improvisationally, even while still basically following a script. And that's not taking into account a series or like Curb Your Enthusiasm or these kind of very, just completely improvised shows where you basically get a synopsis and you have to explore the dialogue in the moment, which can be incredibly thrilling, I would assume, and probably quite scary to do. I think it's important for us to talk about the value of improvisation in the settings, why it's such a core aspect of the work that we certainly do in Meisner and Gary that you do as well. I think it's important to differentiate a little bit. In my experience, the improvisational approaches, and in this case, I will say both improv, comedy training, really can get you to be thinking on your feet, to be working closely with your castmates, to develop ideas entirely spontaneously. There are a number of rules. There, there are tremendous exercises developed over the years by some really profoundly talented teachers in the improv world. And there are great theater companies that are doing incredible work with improv comedy. And a lot of them do training as well. And I find that those skills can be very, very helpful to all actors, not just comedians, giving you time and confidence to think on your feet in the moment whether it's in an audition or on stage or in a rehearsal. I did some training with Second City in Chicago a number of years ago, and I found that immediately my commercial auditions, which is what I was mostly doing at the time, just like they were so positively impacted and I started booking quite regularly. And part of that was, I think that I had tapped into, you know, my goofier side and the colors that were in me that weren't necessarily pinched out regularly. Um, and I had a confidence about being playful in my auditions. And so when, as often happened, casting directors would say, could you just try this? 
I never got nervous really after that. I was like, oh, yay, somebody's giving me the opportunity to play around and let's see what that brings. And that spontaneity, I think, is really one of the most important aspects of why improvisation is so revered and so widely practiced. I think Meisner had a quote about acting without spontaneity is like soup without salt. It's that life force that is potentially all too often missing from performance when we're just sort of going down the line, working solely with the words on the page and not looking at the spaces between and not looking at that behavior underneath or the emotional life underneath it. It's really, it's filling out all of that gray matter and being very exploratory with ourselves and putting ourselves, I think, in a state of play. And to me, it's really critical. I think that the actors who become comfortable with improvisation in their training and in their work, they move so eagerly towards exploring roles. They're not easily intimidated or undermined. They really can go forward with a very open and eager heart and mind towards exploring things. And that's invaluable to me. Uh The second piece is so then when you take it into more traditional acting training, not just as a theater art called improv, it really helps the actors to bring themselves to the work to become expert listeners, to identify their points of view, to really become clear about human behavior as they see it in their partners and as they recognize it in themselves. And it gets them all about the impulses. And that's such an important piece of any training is really getting right up close to your impulses and developing a willingness to follow them And that's where I think the talent lies in, is in working in a very free way that when you see something, when you feel it, when you know it, it's in your body and there is a reaction. There's some kind of a reaction in you. And this to me is really the critical piece of the spontaneity that's required, whether it's in the early stages of something like uh, the Meisner work, where we use it before we ever touch scripts. We're working with an imaginary circumstance. We've got two or three partners together. They are just improvising with a couple of baseline rules about how to speak with one another, how to make use of their behavior. Then we work it into the scene work as we move along. And it's brilliant when you see an actor take on their first scenes and not drop that fabulous, spontaneous, interesting aliveness that they've developed in their earlier work. And when they bring that to the scene work, I mean, what they can create is far beyond anything I think they would imagine they could have created beforehand if you'd handed them Mm -hmm. a script. You know, you see the script and as you say, Brian, like sometimes you get locked in, you see it and it looks like it just adds up. It looks like math. Three times five, it's got to be 15. This has got to be what this scene is. And I've got to do it a certain way. And who wants to watch people who know exactly where they're going? (laughs) Exactly. That's that's not interesting to watch. (laughs) Exactly. And so if actors can themselves get into a state of really not knowing moment to moment quite what's going to happen or how something is going to come out of you or how you're going to be impacted and you go on that ride, well, that's just electrifying for an audience and for a performer. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, improvisation is all about, as you've pointed out, Andrea, 
dealing with the moment and mm-hmm. that's its virtue and there's such correlation actually between what you distinguish as improv which is more comedy based performance and improvisation mm-hmm training in acting technique. I mean, being free to respond to what is actually happening is Mm -hmm. what improvisation is about. And, you know, people forget that in improvisation classes because they have seen improv on Mm -hmm. telly or or live and they tend to go for what's funny. That's also showy and there's such danger to improv. People, they need a bit of a, a quick payback. Just to piggyback on what you're saying, Gary, like what we really value in improv is what we're talking about, right? Which is this dedication to the moment that you have to be listening, that you have to be responding truthfully to what's happening. But I think where people get into trouble, which goes right on the back of what you're saying, is when you think about improv as coming up with something to say. Right. Mm-hmm. That's where you get into trouble. Yeah. Where mm-hmm. you're thinking of how can I say something that's going to be witty or clever or whatever it is. And I've seen this happen in classes mm-hmm. where people start thinking about what they're going to say that's clever and they stop listening and then nobody's responding to anyone anymore. Yeah. That's right. And that's because it totally to takes watch. them out of the moment, right? Well, if you're if Exactly. <laughs> number 1, what are you doing? Are you listening or are you thinking about the next witty thing to say? It's got to be one or the other. Right. 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 You know, the basic rules of improv, whether it's improv, what we're talking about comedy, or whether it's the best type of training that incorporates improv, which Meisner is one of those for sure. Basic rules are work off what the other fellow is doing and, you know, you make the other actors look good and you build on their ideas and Mm -hmm. takes the focus off you. And at the same time, while you're building, as Andrea says, your creativity, your instincts, you're also honing your listening and attention and openness and Mm -hmm. vulnerability. It's a multitude of sins, if you like. But I've done improv in my early days and messing about sort of the comedic side of things. And it was so much fun and clowning and all of that stuff. But one of the things that I think is worth mentioning is the principles of improv have such a strong correlation to Meisner work, but also Mm -hmm. any form of improvisation and the principles that should guide you when you are Mm -hmm. improvising, whether with script, without script, whether you're making up the dialogue and you're just working off a, a basic outline. And those are, it's a, it's a universal standard language in mm-hmm. improv, yeah. comedy improv, is that you make an offer, it's accepted, you say yes and, and you build. But very quickly out of fear, and as you say, Andrea, the thought of wanting to know what's going to come next so you can be good in it creates mm-hmm. a sort of no to most people's experience in improv. And that's where it very much goes freewheeling into chaos and it becomes <laughs> awkward. It's learning up this sequence of I offer you something, a moment, you accept that moment and you say yes to it by accepting it and then building on it. But what often happens because people are so fearful because they aren't able to be in the moment, they get an offer, they reject it. Then another offer is given and they reject that. And there's this cycle of negative interaction happening and it's tense and it's awkward and it's not open. And all these things that we've said, you know, Mm -hmm. openness and vulnerability. What improv can offer is that, is that principle of, even though it's for comedy purposes, whatever you're doing in an improvisation, and as long as there's some kind of freedom to it, which it should be because it's improvisation, otherwise it's not improvisation, is this sense of your partner offers you a moment, you accept it and you build on it rather than rejecting it and pushing it away. 
And part of the fun of doing that is that you don't know what you're going to get. And the fun of watching someone do that is watching that person deal with, okay, I've got this new piece of information. I need to now accept it and build on it. And that forces you to abandon your ideas about where things should go. Right. which makes it good, right. which is what we talk about when we talk about the acting training that we teach in class, right? Where you don't know where it's going to go, where you, where you need to let go of what you think should happen and deal with what is happening. That's very closely linked. Yeah. And sometimes I teach business people like managers workshops in improvisation and we do the yes and game. And there is perceived risk involved in giving up your idea of where it needs to go or coming up with something that's outlandish. It takes a certain willingness to take that step into the unknown in order for you to start working in that way. But once you start to get the feel of that and start to get the feeling of, I can take this step and even if it's wrong, it's still going to be fine. I'm not going to die. That's an important lesson to hold on to. Absolutely. It's as Andrea said earlier, it's play. It's a sense of play. You've got to be able to play. As the great Sanford Meisner said, it's called a play. So play, <laughs> yeah. you know, and even if it ends up in a cul-de-sac of a situation and you stop the camera or stop rehearsals or whatever, it's that element of play, isn't it? Which is positive, which is yes. Yes. And could we give some examples for our audience of some character work or scene work that we've explored or led our actors through and how we set up those improvisations? and what we set out to achieve with them in terms of an understanding or behavioral find. Can you give some examples? I'm happy to start if you can't think of anything. Go for it, Andrea. Go ahead. Okay. Let's see. I don't know if I've discussed this one. Here's one that comes to mind. We were working on Hamlet with Mark Pellegrino and Scott Subiano, an excellent actor, also based out of Los Angeles. And we were working on one of Polonius's scenes when he essentially tells the king and the queen that he believes that Hamlet is mad. And there's a very specific behavior and understanding that we were reaching for and trying to wrap our minds around. And so we had some conversations with our director, Tracy Aziz, about it. You know, some as if conversations. It's as if this is happening. And then we improvised around a couple of those as ifs. And one of them was, it's as if you, Polonius, are a doctor and you have this couple in your waiting room and their son is being treated by you. And you have to break to them the news that he is possibly irreparably damaged. And so do that. So then we all take a couple minutes. We wrap our brains around it, do a little emotional preparation. And then we come on stage and we just talk out that scenario as if he's the doctor and he needs to tell me this news. And we work closely off of each other's behavior. And when we grab onto a behavior that feels right for the scene and we're emotionally charged and the director sees that we're in the right territory as the scene, she can say, that's it. Now switch over to the scene. And we keep the same behavior, the same emotional life. We don't switch anything. We just layer on top of that behavior, the words of the scene. And what you've discovered is everything that lies underneath. It's a very clear way to work and it's a way to gain clarity if you don't have it, certainly behaviorally and emotionally. 
That's just one example of how to find the behavior in a scene. And that's to a great degree how we use it in that work. At the same time, you know, developing character, you can approach it very similarly. If you're trying to define a relationship or a way of being as a character, you can do fantasy work on your own on stage in a public private way where you're living something out very spontaneously. You have an idea of what you want to live out, but you're, you just set yourself on a course and then try it out and see what kind of behavior and inner life you can conjure up for yourself. It's getting yourself into the ballpark with some starting ideas and not steering the car so that you insist that you get to that place that you intellectually think you should go to. Mm -hmm. It's really trusting. I'm going to play in this field. And I think I've come up with a situation that already does something to me internally. I can already feel it sparking something in me. Ah, this makes sense. I feel something already just talking about it. Let's go. Let's just live this thing out and see what we come up with. And then afterwards, you can determine where the value was as a rehearsal. But it's really just sort of jumping off of that ledge and not holding on too tightly to a result. But you don't know quite what you will discover when you set out on on the course. Another way to use improvisation in a professional, like a rehearsal or something like that, would be to get the chance to live out an experience that might be described in the text, Mm but isn't written out. So if, let's say, the night before this particular scene is supposed to take place, you and the person who's in the scene had an argument or something happened that is alluded to in the text but isn't written as a scene, so you could improvise that situation or that mm-hmm. that circumstance where you come in and, and you have a certain argument, whatever it might be, or you're at the birth of the baby that you had longed for your whole life, or you're at the funeral of your parent or whatever it is. And that's a way that I think a lot of people can get a connection to mm-hmm. something that's real, that when that part of the scene comes up for them, they can use that experience of actually having lived that improvisation out Mm -hmm. as fuel for having a response in the moment when they need to do the play. Now, you can also do that with just using your imagination or using an as if, but that's that's a really solid way of using an improvisation in a rehearsal process to experience things that you might needed to have experienced as a part of going through whatever journey the piece has you go through. Yeah. I mean, that's the beauty of the Meisner improvisations is that even though even in the early stages, you're using maybe repetition still, you set up circumstances that get at maybe a scene like you're saying, Brian, that you have to explore that precedes another scene that you actually see in the play or the film. And what you do is you feel with your acting partner that you've developed some kind of lived experience. Right. Mm -hmm. But I mean, we often think that it's just applicable to sort of textual work. But you just reminded me talking about Hamlet and Shakespeare. This was also Shakespeare. It was Midsummer Night's Dream. And I worked with a brilliant director um, and I saw his work mm-hmm. and he did a brilliant thing. And he just used an essence of certain states of behavior in order to free actors up. And there was this workshop where he was working with the fairies. And, you know, I've seen it so many times where the fairies are so twee and fairy-like and all the rest of it. And... <laughs> 
he just basically went around and whispered in each of the actors' ears a drug that they were on. So, you know, one was on marijuana, another one was on ecstasy, another one was on cocaine, another one was on heroin. And all of a sudden, we were seeing these fantastical characters, they're fairies, for God's sake. But they were acting in a way that was very unique to each of those fairies because they were very personalized and very individual. And yet, we didn't at any point think that they were actors playing fairies. They were just Mm -hmm. these beings because they took this one essence. Anyway, I kind of took that as inspiration and I just got everyone to imagine that they were all extremely horny and all they wanted to do was just have (laughs) sex with each other, but they had to contain it because then that would just get, you know, the obvious would be everyone's going around like rabid dogs. So you have to contain it, but there's this bursting desire and some of it was successful, some of it wasn't, but the successful part of it was was really created behavior behavior just from one thing. So, you know, there's ways of improvising by dropping a little seed in there or one ingredient which isn't necessarily script bound or emotion bound, but is more of a kind of state or a simple idea that the actor can riff on. Nice. Do you guys have experiences or stories that you could tell about doing it in front of a camera? Yes. So I worked on a feature film. I think I've talked a little bit about this project before, and much of the initial script was generated through improvisation, where we had our main storylines and we got together with the director and he had an idea of the relationship and what was essentially happening in a scene. And we had rehearsals that he filmed and lived out these different elements of our storylines. And that became the basis for the feature script. And then we reshot it, you know, properly as a film. But we essentially filmed the improvisations as part of our script and character development, which was a really, you know, it was a tremendous opportunity to have an idea about what we wanted to say, what we wanted to bring to things, to be able to bring much of ourselves to a piece and our personal point of view and have that incorporated into the script. It was really tremendous. And then I've also done it on camera in professional capacities, and it's a lot of fun. I love being given the permission to improvise. I think it's really great. And I think it's often a sign of a director's trust in him or herself and in the performers that have been cast, that he wants to sort of set up the boundaries of the playground and say, here's the tool, you're going to get the hammer and you're going to get the bucket. And I want you all to make a castle. It's kind of what happens. Um, mm-hmm. We see that in projects like Larry David too, you know, where they don't know fully what's intended for a scene until they until they get into it. But they all have some They're different sure, pieces yeah. of information, and the way it comes together is unique to those performers, and that's just part of the brilliance. So yeah, I, I've done it a number of times, and I, I very mm-hmm. much enjoy using improvisation at work. Yeah. I was shooting a film last year, which was written by an Italian director whose you know, first language isn't English, and it wasn't great. But the ideas were good, and the ideas were sound, and the ideas were clear. So there was this one outburst, a speech, and quite a long speech, which I completely, with his permission and with his complete support, had to rewrite it, basically. And I improvised it and improvised it and improvised it with him. And there was a very particular point of view that I had to get behind. But there's lots of specific things that I had to cover. 
So there was a combination here of being able to construct my own sentences, but I still had to include some information in there. So we fucked around and we fucked around on camera and we improvised and we let the camera roll and he just kept saying, why? Why is that? What do you think about that? And and he kept prompting me and throwing things in, which were later cut. And then we did a version where we had that. And then I went away and wrote it and then put it into the film. He still allowed me to improvise around that. So it was still quite loose. But um, there was a structure there. And I think that's important because um, otherwise it can just be so freewheeling. The words have got to support the intention and the whole intent behind it. And I think that's the danger of some improvisation is if you don't understand what's behind it and the intention then the words may not be powerful enough, strong enough, specific enough to support that. Mm. Right. I think it's so brilliant in the Meisner technique, just because what you're guiding the students to do with the repetition is to not, sorry, let's just say it, not make shit up. Like You have to break really early the inclination to create dialogue. Mm -hmm. And so once you've gotten past that impulse to create dialogue, to be funny, to be witty, to be interesting, to start conversations, to be polite, whatever it is, when you've rid yourself of that, uh, what's left is room to get really to the heart of what you're getting from your partner in the moment, how it makes you feel, sticking with the behavior, understanding what the circumstance is, and exploring how you feel about it. And, you know, you don't get so caught in the weeds because you've already been learning how to get to the guts of what's going on between you and your partner. Yeah. I was on set for Jojo Rabbit and that was watching Stephen Merchant Mm -hmm. and Taika Waititi for a lot of it, just coming up with fun lines to say, but Stephen Merchant was just improvising just, well, he was more like riffing. I, that's uh, slightly different, but like riffing on line after line after line and just coming up with brilliant things. And then Taika would shout out, Hey, say this line, you know, it's kind of like in the Anchorman when you see Judd, um, you know, Judd Apatow kind of, uh, shouting lines to Will Ferrell yeah. in the, in the making of, but what that does when there is that kind of like, Hey, we're just going to come up with the best or not even the best, but just kind of like brainstorming lines and brainstorming moments as the cameras are rolling. Yes, there's a lot of chaff, but there's a lot of wheat as well, you know, and you Mm -hmm. can kind of separate out like the best stuff and you get to stuff that you wouldn't have ever thought, you know, Taika Waititi sitting at his desk will come up with a lot of really great stuff, but maybe in the moment something else will happen that was unexpected or that is a part of the moment that fits even better. And so watching that process on set, like that is an example of, I wasn't doing it myself so much, but like... Like I was watching these two really experienced comedians and improvisers come up with some brilliant things in the moment. And that was, that was very special to be able to watch that. Yeah, it's great. It's the sketching, isn't it? It's the freedom and the luxury Mm. to be able to sketch. Yeah. Some of it will be junked quite rightly, but you're left with a couple of gold nuggets. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. One question. Do you have a favorite? Oh, wow, that was improvised and that's just amazing. Or, yeah, I love that. And I found out that it was improvised. I mean, anything that people might know of. I think that the behavior of Marlon Brando picking up the glove Uh in On the Waterfront was improvised. Uh That wasn't planned. Yeah. That he just kind of did that and kind of played with it and just went with it. Yeah. I mean, Um, talk about being in the moment there. Yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, one of my favourites is a Clockwork Orange when the gang go round to that house and they basically cause havoc and rip it apart and are violent and it's all two singing in the rain and they do these mm-hmm. dances and stuff and uh, basically Kubrick being Kubrick was choreographing everything was absolutely like he does choreographing everything and he just wasn't getting sort of this menace of the the gang in Clockwork Orange so he just said you know what I'm just going to throw this out the window let's put singing in the rain on and let the actors just do what they want to do and they came mm-hmm. up with you know these little dances that were copied from the movie, all these delicate little chassés and little dances while kicking someone on the floor or being really violent and mm. trashing the place. And it's a really powerful scene. It's like, because you've got that juxtaposition of singing in the rain and then they are all improvising all completely from scratch and it's quite powerful. I think Tom Hanks is quite good at it, actually. And, you know, he got his start in more comedic work, but I think that he brings some really nice moments. I think that he had some really nice stuff in Castaway and a couple other films that he's known to have had some nice improvisational moments. He does it very, very smoothly. Also, you know, I've been listening to this book. This kind of goes to our next section. I've been listening to a book by Matthew McConaughey that he's written. It's, it's doing really, really well. And he's talking about some of his improvisational experiences as well from time to time. I think like Dazed and Confused, you know, the all right, all right, all right was was very improvised. But um, he loves to do character work and exploration uh, in advance and really find the energy and the style of somebody and get into it. And then I think he does it so intensely that he really trusts himself that he can come up spontaneously on the spot with something that's appropriate and unique to that character. I think that Joaquin Phoenix, a lot of the moments that he had in The Joker mm-hmm. were improvised, like dancing down the stairs. I think was improvised. And I think that the moments, the dance that he does in the bathroom Mm -hmm. is also improvised Mm -hmm. where they just kind of set up the camera and said, okay, do your thing. And, and he kind of did it. And similar, that reminded me with the clockwork orange because it's (laughs) kind of a similar type of menace and, and this kind of wild freedom. Yeah. And it's non-dialogue. Yeah. It's it's behavior. It's physical. Yeah. And um, let's not forget Dustin Hoffman. I'm walking here, really. Yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. really responding in the moment to a very real moment that yeah. was accidental, very accidental. Yeah. I mean, my yeah. favorite, if I can just get it in, is in the Graduate, which I didn't know this, which is amazing. Is there's that moment where Benjamin is with the elder woman. Mrs. Robinson. Mrs. Robinson, famously. And he's there for the first time and she's coming on to him. And it cuts to him banging his head against the wall. I don't know if you remember that. But that came from the fact that he couldn't remember his lines. Mm-hmm. And she was doing this and she was, they were playing in the scene and he couldn't remember his lines and he kept dropping his lines and he couldn't know what to do and he kept missing his mark and he was just wasn't on the ball. And what happened was he just lost it and he just walked over to the wall and started banging his head mm-hmm. um, as a reaction to him being so bad with his lines. But what the director, John Schlesinger, did was started to film it and he cut it all together. So what it looks like is that Benjamin, the character, is banging his head against the wall in reaction to Mrs. Robinson coming onto him and he can't take it. (laughs) Brilliant. And it has nothing 
to do with the sea, you know? Yeah. I was listening to an interview of someone who was working with a lot with Scorsese, and I can't remember the name of the actor. It was a few years ago that I heard this interview, and he said that you, as an actor, if you get into trouble with, like, you screw something up in a take, what he said was that what Scorsese really loves is not having a perfect take every time. It's watching people get out of trouble. It's watching when you screw up, how do you get back mm -hmm. to the thing that you're quote unquote supposed to be doing? Because those are the real moments. Right. Right. There's a, I don't know if it's famous, but Jimmy Stewart once said that like, really what you're doing as a film actor, the only thing you need to do is provide truthful moments mm -hmm. and yeah. not worrying about whether you're not telling the incomplete story as much as we like to think that we are. We're not telling the complete story that the audience is going to see. We're providing material to the editor to tell the story. Mm -hmm. And so if the moments are truthful, they are usable. Yeah. And so that whole thing of like, well, if the truth of the situation that you're in is banging your head against the wall and the director is cool enough to go along with that and the other actors are rolling with it, then that's going to be useful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Which is why it's a real shame when you go to the theater and the most enlivening real moment is when an actor forgets his lines. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, yeah. oh. Everyone wakes oh, up everyone at that point. Up, and then it's oh, like, look, that's oh. what humanity looks like. That's cool. Yeah. 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 Like a bit mm. of life, you know. Yes. Uh, but hey. That's the magic of theater. Yeah. When it hits it, it... Hopefully we can get back to seeing live theater soon. Mm. With spontaneous improvisational actors. Exactly. <laughs> but in lieu of not seeing live theater, what have you guys seen or read or heard this week that has sparked you? Well, I am listening to the audio version of Matthew McConaughey's book, Green Lights. I highly recommend that. He writes very beautifully and powerfully. And, oh gosh, okay, you guys, I, I'm always providing the lowbrow end of things. So I think it's number one on Netflix right now. It's called Virgin River. It's a series filmed in mostly in the Vancouver area. Some beautiful settings. It's a little bit soapy, but it's kind of got me. It's got like a net O'Toole in it and some, some really strong actors in it. But I'm very taken by the performance of the male lead. His The actor's name is Martin Henderson. Apparently he's a Kiwi who lived and worked in Australia and um, then came to the U.S. I really like his listening skills a lot. He's got a lot of subtext. There's much that he doesn't say, and yet it's all over his face. And you see when he struggles to keep something in or to not acknowledge, or whatever it is, there's a lot going on with him. And I think that his performance is one of the reasons the show is doing so well, to be honest. So a lot of credit to his work. And then I'm waiting to see The Queen's Gambit. I haven't started it yet but I hear so many good things. So that's, it's so good. Yes. It's so good. Oh, and that's not my, my recommendation, but it's really good. Yeah. I've heard <laughs> it. Very good. I haven't seen it, but um, my partner's seen it and she said it's very good. Yeah. Mm. What about you? 
I'll go next. So uh, I actually have two and I'll make them fairly brief, I think. So one of them related to improvisation, and I think it's still on Netflix, is Middleditch and Schwartz. So it's Thomas Middleditch and Ben Schwartz, and they are phenomenal improvisers. And Mm -hmm. it's the two of them doing a completely improvised one hour show in front of a huge theater of people. Just the two of them playing all the characters and you see incredible examples of yes and character work, space work, like everything. And it's, and it's moving and it's funny and it's, it's just great. I, I loved it. There were, there's, when I saw it, there were four episodes on Netflix. Maybe they're not there anymore. Maybe they are, but if you can find middle ditch and Schwartz, that's great. So that's one thing that's related to tonight's episode of improvisation. And the other thing that I saw today which I'm probably late to the party on because I'm, you know, a, I don't know what I am. I'm a Gen Xer and, um, and I don't keep up with the latest YouTube, you know, sensations, but I encountered Jacob Collier today. Do you guys know who that is? No. No. It's a YouTube, he's a YouTuber. Andrea, you are going to love this. He basically sings acapella with himself and does like multi-track songs and it's incredibly beautiful he does this version of moon river which you can see on youtube and it is microtonal and all kinds of interesting like chord progressions and so that piece is beautiful but what i am recommending is he has an hour and 40 minute breakdown of how he composed that version of moon river that he has on youtube okay and it is fascinating. Cool. How he comes up with not just the technological side, but also the musicality that happens. And he goes through the chord progressions and he goes through how he uses his breath or how he uses different vocal registers to create this, you know, it's a four minute piece that he basically locked himself in his bedroom and for seven days wrote and recorded this variation on Moon River. And it is Mm. absolutely fascinating. Can you give us his name again, Brian? Yeah, his name is Jacob Collier, C-O-L-L-I-E-R, I believe. Okay. And he's got a ton of music on YouTube. Uh, and he was nom- This Moon River was nominated for a Grammy. I think it was uh, probably last year in 2019. Great. So he has a version of it, if you look him up, where it's the Logic Breakdown. Mm-hmm. So it's in Logic Pro, and it's the breakdown of how he did all of the tracks. And it is fascinating. Great. So if you haven't already looked it up, definitely look it up. It's great. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Cool. Gary. Yeah, so this week I've dived back into um, a John Cassavetes movie, if we're talking about improv, and here's someone who certainly executed uh, improv around his script and created lots of great moments through improv. In particular, this movie I saw this week of his was Opening Night, which is all about the theatre and all about acting and an actress, and it is truly mesmerizing the performances and and the study of the anxiety and the identity crisis in theater and as an actress and Gina Rowland's just she takes the movie by the throat like she normally does but in particular Mm -hmm. this one 
she really grabs it by the throat and it's about an actress who witnesses something terrible an accident and just spirals and gets very much into drink and and all the rest of it and and um ben gazar is in it who's also fabulous and john cassavetes is also in it uh, himself but for me this is his most cleverly constructed movie it's fluid still in his shooting style but it's so intense and the actors are so compelling and i'm sure there's a lot of improvisation that goes on in it some people feel it's a bit long and it's quite heavy but you know i'm not uh, afraid of heaviness so check out john cassavetes opening night and particularly gina Rowlands's mesmerizing performance she's the bee's knees people she is awesome Awesome, awesome, awesome. Well, so thank you all out there in Vagabond Actorland for listening to this episode. We, of course, welcome your comments, your questions, your challenges that you're facing in your acting career and training. So definitely get in touch with us. We're at Vagabond Actors on Twitter and Instagram and on Facebook. You can write us to our Facebook page and we look forward to hearing from you. Some of you have gotten in touch with some questions and we'll be releasing some episodes about those questions shortly. But if you want to get in touch with Andrea or Gary or myself individually and follow us and see what, you know, what, what I posted some Thanksgiving shots, I guess, recently on my Instagram. So if you want to follow us, Andrea, how can people follow and get in touch with you? I am on Twitter at Andrea underscore Helene and on Instagram at Andrea Helene 3. And Gary, what about you? How can people get in touch with you? Yeah, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, <laughs> at Gary Condes for all of them. Or, you know, if you really want to get in touch, why not just send me an email via my website, garycondes.com, on the contact page. I'll be happy to hear from you. Great. And I am at Brian Casp with an I and an E at the end. And we'd love to hear from you. So until next time, stay safe, wear a mask, and keep on keeping on. Thanks, folks. Bye. Thank you.